Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. In the place of our usual host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, this episode will be hosted by me, Evgenia Kutsuki, the editor of EMJ. As the summer is coming to an end, we thought this would be a great opportunity to reflect on some highlights from the past few months together and look back on some of the most fascinating and memorable moments from the podcast that have made this summer series such a fascinating listen. First of all, we welcomed Richard Cohen, Chief of Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic in London, who dove into a multitude of gastrointestinal disorders and their surgical treatments. Cohen also covered minimally invasive surgery and explained in which cases robotic surgery can be beneficial. I have younger colleagues who are unbelievably talented with uh, chopsticks, as I, as, I, as, I, as I call them. And of course, now the robot is coming to be yet another tool um, for, for, for use. And I, I think where the robot has real benefit, perhaps, is very low rectal cancer dissection, where you get this fantastic view uh, in, in, in the pelvis. And the other interesting, I think, very great use for the robot that's very difficult to do any other way is in dealing with hernias of the abdominal wall, because the robot can look up at the abdominal wall and you can suture uh, which is something you can't do laparoscopically or you'd have to open the patient. So I, I think that's a very interesting area as well. Next, Arthur Burnett, Professor of Urology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, discussed controversy in urology and embarrassing urological conditions that lead individuals to suffer in silence. Burnett also spoke about the importance of the HPV vaccine and the effect it could have in the urology field. And here with HPV, the science also suggests that we can train our immune systems with vaccines uh, to help uh, thwart uh, conditions that uh, were devastating uh, disease states in the past. So I think that I'll champion this. I encourage uh, the thought that uh, we can follow the science and really have a better survival and treatment of our diseases. For HPV, we do see this in urology uh, surrounding penile cancers as well. Uh, but it can affect uh, cervical structures, uh, the internal structures of the female genital tract. Uh, vaccines being offered to adolescents uh, is, is strongly recommended in the culture now. Uh, I do support that. Uh, in terms of whether we've seen great advances just yet, I think we will uh, hope to see, and uh, as time goes forward, a reduction in some of the HBV-related cancers uh, that we had seen so much in the past. So. Uh, I'm supportive of this. I hope that we will continue to make progress in this field as well. Bernard further discussed diversity and how disparities in healthcare can impact survival. So I think that uh, while we've made progress, we still have progress to make. Uh, and I think there's also what we call disparities in healthcare that still permeate our society. Uh, there are differences in the sort of services that are provided, even survival uh, between ethnic groups. So I think we still have progress to make. Our guest Samuel Washington from the University of California also discussed disparities in healthcare, focusing on how racial disparities affect the diagnosis and treatment of urological tumors. Washington discussed how removing financial barriers impacts outcomes for patients. Yeah, so thankfully there have been a few studies looking within our veteran population in which the the we have an, an entire kind of comprehensive system of healthcare for our vets, um, as well as clinical trials. So in these settings where men, the financial barriers are removed, 
some of the other societal barriers are removed. We see that outcomes are equivalent or near equivalent um, between black men and white counterparts. So it gives us an ideal to strive for outside of those controlled settings. Kristen Coe, professor of dermatology and pathology at Yale University, joined us for a two-part podcast. In the first episode, Coe discussed how skin cancers are becoming more common due to sun exposure and chemical carcinogens. Skin cancer is becoming more common and, you know, it may be due to the ozone layer. It's a little hard to know. Um, Definitely, I think sun, you know, sun exposure can be a component of skin cancer um, pathogenesis, so that can be related. Human papillomavirus and other chemical carcinogens can also cause skin cancer, so some of that can also be a culprit that viruses are more commonly transmitted, like say, for example, human papillomavirus is more um, ubiquitous these days. In the second part of the discussion, Code discussed visual perception and its importance in the dermatology field. Yeah, so I, dermatology and dermatopathology, you know, obviously looking through a microscope, but really dermatology is looking at someone's skin. And so really what I see, but really then what my brain perceives from what actually crosses my visual field is really important. And When I started to think about visual perception, meaning the how of diagnosis, so when I look at something on someone's skin or someone else looks at it, how do I know what that is? Or when I look at something under the microscope, really how does my brain then pop up with a diagnosis that hopefully is right rather than wrong? Also a dermatologist, Eva Parker, Assistant Professor of Dermatology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, explained how dermatological diseases, such as atopic dermatitis, are often linked to mental health comorbidities and discussed how climate change can affect these conditions. Because mental health comorbidities are so common in atopic dermatitis, and there's been a lot of research looking at mental health and climate change and the impacts of heat and stress and and migration and loss of homes, uh, loss of loved ones because of extreme weather events, and now a growing body of evidence linking atopic dermatitis severity and exacerbations to a multitude of climate impacts. I thought it would be really interesting to examine the intersectionality of those three topics. And what we found was that not only does climate change impact atopic dermatitis, which then can flare mental health disease, it's bi-directional. Climate change can also impact mental health disease, which can then flare atopic dermatitis. And so you have this rather complicated, vicious cycle that can occur with those comorbidities in the setting of atopic dermatitis and climate impacts. Diving deeper into mental health, Michaela Starace from the Department of Medical and Surgical Sciences, University of Bologna, discussed alopecia areata and how this condition can affect the quality of life and mental health of affected patients. We gave a very important role of the psychological aspect in this disease 
not because alopecia areata is a stressful disease, never, absolutely the stress is not implicated in this, patholo in this uh, the pathogenesis of this disease, but uh, no one is happy to lose their hair. And for this reason, we have to look at this and we have to consider the psychological aspect when you have no hair on your scalp because it is a physical but also a psychological. And we have to compliance this type of patient. We can have uh, important to give enough uh, importance to the history, to the, the life of the patient with this disease. This is important. And we understand if you have a good doctor, if you have uh, not only to resolve the problem, but to have a all complete review of the patient, you can receive a very good compliance from it, from the patients. Strache also discussed different ways alopecia can affect the body and the use of JAK inhibitors as treatment. Um, so uh, alopecia reata is an autoimmune hair disease that affects persons that are predisposed of this autoimmunity and this can be affected in different parts of the scalp in a different degree, but also other parts. So like eyelashes, eyebrow, nail, and so on. For this reason, in the last year, we reconsidered this disease not only a scalp disorder, but a general autoimmune disorder. And this, this change gives very good attention to this disease, and it is a uh, affect also with the, the type of this drug. The JAK inhibitors are the new era of the therapy of alopecia areata. And until now, we have a lot of therapy, but they are not described as a guideline. This is the real problem of alopecia areata. It is a very frequent uh, disease, hair disease. It affects 2-3% of mondial population all, the, all, over this, all over the world. And until now, we not have a real good standard guideline. But um, finally, arrived this drug that arrived directly on the pathogenesis of the alopecia areata. And this is the first important role of JAK inhibitor because we arrived directly where is the cause of the hair disease. Maura Griffin, hematology consultant at Leeds University Teaching Hospitals, dove into rare hematological diseases and provided details on paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. So PNH uh, is a rare, very rare, ultra-rare condition uh, characterized by a process of intravascular hemolysis and thrombosis. It's life-threatening and patients often present either with anemia or they'll complain of significant lethargy, red or black urine or hemoglobinuria, difficulty swallowing such as dysphagia, abdominal pain, or a life-threatening thrombosis, or a less life-threatening thrombosis, but a DVT or a pulmonary embolus. The process of PNH is caused by an acquired somatic mutation in the PIGA gene, so it's not an inherited disorder, it's an acquired disorder. And patients uh, can present mainly in their 30s, but we have patients as young as 7, and patients presenting into their 90s as well. Patients can take some time to diagnose. We spend quite a lot of time um, teaching and, and educating about PNH as patients can present to different specialties, uh, particularly if they've got hemoglobinuria, they might present to urology, they might present to gastroenterology with abdominal pain, etc. Griffin also discussed the importance of international collaboration when dealing with rare diseases. The 
hallmark trials which were done uh, in 2003, 2004, uh, were a multinational trial um, to try and address treatment for PNH, uh, which it was very challenging and difficult, particularly due to the rarity of the disease, but also um, the level of interest in doing clinical trials within the rare disease field. And so more, um, collaboration is, is essential. But also um, diagnostic collaboration, basic bench to um, research, uh, usually requires collaboration around the world. But not only that, but for patients that um, we're struggling with as physicians, or um, we may well have a, an anonymized discussion um, with, with colleagues as to whether they've had a similar experience, what they would suggest um, to get more of a wider MDT approach. And certainly we also receive various email inquiries asking for advice throughout the week, um, maybe one or two emails a week from various colleagues. Finally, Mark Sullivan, founder of Medicines for Global Health, discussed global health inequality, diving into the difficulties of finding funding and how that affects product development? You know, I, I think one of the things, you know, that that number, which is often published about how much it costs to develop a drug, people say, no, really, come on, it doesn't take that much. But actually it does, because there's a lot of failures on the way. And and that's this, this question of how frequently products fail in development. People say, I'm in the clinic, and you're meant to get excited about that. But once you're in the clinic, you have a one in 10 chance of success. So once you're halfway through the clinical process, you're still under 50% chance of getting through. So I think, you know, those sort of um, statistics are important for people to, to be aware of and to know that you can't change a, a drug. A drug is a drug. Our job is to reveal the truth about that drug. And so uh, that's what we do um, for a living. We reveal all that we can about its characteristics, we can't change them. All we can do is show what they are and then a judgment has to be made about whether or not that's okay. Sullivan stressed the fact that access to healthcare is a fundamental human right and solutions need to be found to ensure access in low and middle income countries. For me, I feel like the, the desire is there, the willing has always been there. People such as me who work in the pharmaceutical industry People who are listening to this podcast, working in healthcare, are passionate about making a difference in the world. It is the case. And I feel like there haven't been as many clear mechanisms for how you have input into that. How do you, how do you address such an enormous problem as healthcare in low and middle income countries? And if you accept that this is a basic human right, access to healthcare is a fundamental human right. Now, that's your underlying principle. You're going to try to find some way to, to do it. You're going to try and find a, a solution. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. I'd like to thank all of the wonderful guests who have made this year so remarkable for our EMJ podcast so far by sharing their inspiring careers. Of course, thanks also to our amazing host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Until next time, I'm Evgenia Kutsuki and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast.